Hey, Beyond Medicine listeners, welcome back to the show. This is a very special episode and an episode that really inspired me and moved me even after listening back to it. Casey McPherson is the father of Rose, a six-year-old girl who was diagnosed with a rare genetic disease and was told that this was incurable. And when I met Casey several months ago and he told me about the story and the lengths that he has gone to to find a cure for his daughter out of pure love, out of pure devotion. And when I heard the lengths to which he's gone to actually put together a lab, put together a scientific team, raise hundreds of thousands of dollars, all in the name of finding a cure for his daughter, I found that extremely moving. And I found that to be a story that needs to be told to the world and that parents who are going through a similar struggle should hear, and that all of us should hear, because it's a story of devotion and a story of the lengths we can go to as humans to do things out of love. And so I really wanted to share this episode. I hope you guys enjoy it, and I hope that it inspires you. All right, Casey, welcome to the show. Excited to have you on. Um, So uh, you and I met, well, we didn't actually meet, but we spoke somehow, we got connected, and um, you told me your story, and I found it fascinating from a, you know, just from a commitment level, right? Obviously, you've been through a very difficult road, uh, which I'll let you tell the story about that. But really, you know, the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast was to tell your story and to talk a little bit about the Takura Rose Foundation and we'll go from there, really. And I think rare diseases in general, I think, are a topic that we really should be a little bit more aware of because it is a very difficult class of diseases, obviously, just from a funding standpoint, from a development standpoint. So um, I'll let you start off just by kind of telling us a little bit about your background and your story, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah. No, thanks for having me, Romy. Appreciate it. Well, to start off, I never thought I would ever end up in healthcare. I fell asleep in biology class. <laughs> you know, I was a professional musician most of my life. So the only drugs I knew about were the ones that the guy sold at the back of the club, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so that's sort of where I started this journey from was I had my 20s and early 30s been a really, you know, successful musician, but many, many failures to get there. And... uh had two kids and got married, had two kids at the height of my career and uh, also had sobered up around that time, you know, and uh, my oldest daughter's Weston, she's eight, and my youngest daughter's Rose, who's now six. And I guess, you know, the first part of this journey is the diagnostic odyssey for rare disease. And I I am a story that you could multiply by, you know, million, two million, three million, maybe, you know, many more. And just my journey was my daughter was not walking. She lost her ability to talk. She was choking on her food. I was giving her enemas. In the current system, the way a neurologist would approach this is by doing panels, genetic testing panels of approved panels through Mm -hmm. the state. And... So if you have a disease that is has a therapeutic or that indication has been approved uh, for insurance to cover, you get tested for that. So he thought it was Angelman's, and it came up negative. And so, you know, you think about the urgency mm-hmm. as a child develops intervention, 
you know, the sooner the better. Mm-hmm. So you're looking about a year of this diagnostic odyssey. And eventually I got online and learned you can do a whole exome or whole genome sequence. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you just saw the news from Illumina, but, you know, that's becoming even more, we're getting closer and closer to that being available to everybody. Uh-huh. But in Texas, it's not something insurance covers. And so, you know, we went to GeneDX and, you know, the cost was $10,000 then. And it's come down considerably more since then. And I remember, you know, I sent the genetic results of the whole exome sequence to the neurologist for him to interpret it. Mm-hmm. Again, fell asleep in biology class. <laughs> and, you know, it was me and my two daughters, and we walked in the office, and he said, Casey, Rose has a genetic disease called HNRNPH2 with a variant R114W, and I didn't know what any of that meant, just a bunch mm-hmm. of letters and numbers. He says, there is nothing we can do. There is no cure or treatment. Good mm-hmm. luck. And so for the first time in my life, I ran into what I considered a very dead end in the healthcare mm-hmm. system. Yeah. On that Gene DX report, though, was uh, two emails, Dr. Jennifer Bain, a neurologist out of Columbia, and Dr. Wendy Chung, who mm-hmm. you may be familiar with if you saw the gene on PBS. So I emailed both of them, set up meetings, what is going on. And, you know, what I learned is currently there's over 10,000 rare genetic diseases, over 400 million people are affected by them 200 million are you know half of those are kids Mm -hmm. and about 30 percent of those kids will never see their fifth birthday and so we call them rare disease but that's 400 million people yeah you know and only five percent of these diseases have cures so you know that shows you what a deficit in technology and healthcare we have right now so Obviously, being a musician and not knowing anything about this, I Google parent cures child of rare disease. <laughs> and, you know, at this point, things can go many ways because there's a lot of snake oil out there. You know, parents are desperate, yeah. you know, and and unfortunately, many times in the healthcare system, your doctor or your pediatrician or your neurologist is sort of following this path. So if it doesn't fit within what is known, there is no path or time for them, even the business model, right, of how you see patients, it just doesn't work to be that supportive. So it was really on our own. And I found a, read about a parent who had created genetic treatment for her daughter and organized a team of scientists and, and within a year had got it approved through the FDA and her daughter was treated. And her name's Julia Vitarello. You can look it up, and it's a drug called Melison. It's an RNA therapeutic, which mm-hmm. is now what we're developing. Yeah. So I found her, and I said, teach me. Mm-hmm. What did you do? How do you do this? And she began to connect me with all these scientists and drug developers, and I began to learn about drug development. Mm-hmm. And maybe, you know, I, I could never be a neuroscientist, mm-hmm. but I could certainly manage a team wrought with failure and difficult decisions. I mean, that's the music business, you know? So Mm -hmm. that part I was comfortable with. Um, And so that's what I did. I talked to hundreds of people, scientists, drug developers, companies, academics, and and saw that the real reason my daughter didn't have a therapeutic was not because we couldn't make one. It was because 
it doesn't make enough money to commercialize it. Because, mm. you know, so currently in the FDA system, you have to get through these clinical trials and commercialize a drug in order for insurance to cover it. And yeah. when you look at a disease, like my daughter, Rose, there's 100 known cases. And so you go through a clinical trial, mm-hmm. half your customers are gone, you know? And, and so there's no way of commercializing that kind of drug. So we yeah. need a completely new system in how to approach these. Yeah. So learning all that, I started a foundation in order to create a platform to develop genetic treatments for these kids with rare diseases. And then, you know, most recently started Everloom, which is just a, a lab to do that work. Interesting. This episode is brought to you by Beyond Medicine Group. That is us. We are a health tech community, and we are a community really for all health tech enthusiasts, including physicians, founders, investors, anybody that has anything to do with health tech. If you're not part of Beyond Medicine Group, honestly, you're missing out. Really, we started this group because we wanted to connect our clinical leadership with digital health founders and our founders that are looking for experts, really experts in the field that can help them with building their companies, helping with either feedback or consulting or advising. Uh, This is just really a collaborative community and we're housed on Slack. We do a lot of conversations and job boards and all various types of things that we can all benefit from. So if you're not part of the community, make sure you check it out, beyondmedicinegroup.com. It's $10 a month or $100 for the year. With that, you get access to our member directory, our job boards, you get resources, you get my support, uh, you get our community support. So check it out, beyondmedicinegroup.com. Just to rewind a little bit, when Rose was born, was there any indication that anything was wrong or was it till later on that those neurologic symptoms started to develop? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great question, especially, too, because as a provider, you know, you're, you're looking for symptoms and phenoty- you know, phenotypes that match something that you understand. But parents are becoming more and more part of this equation of diagnoses. Mm-hmm. And so we noticed there we we knew something was wrong we didn't know what it was yeah you know she couldn't lift her head up she couldn't put any weight on her feet and so this is that first 18 months you know and it was choking on her food so uh i don't know what the medical terminology is but it's that dysphagia yes yeah and Mm. and then when she was able she could say mom mama dada and outside Mm -hmm. and when she stopped saying that that's when it was like sort yeah. of undeniable that this wasn't yeah. a like a developmental issue of like every child develops you yeah. know differently. This yeah. was definitely something deeper. Yeah. So your senses were like something's wrong here. We need to figure it out. Absolutely. And, yeah. And uh, and uh, at that point, you had met with some doctors, and I'm guessing how long did the diagnose? How long? How much later did the diagnosis actually come? Yeah, so I think we probably started this, you know, uh, when she was born, mm-hmm. trying to figure out uh, what was going on. And at first it was, hey, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Kids develop differently. I think the whole process took about a year and a half. 
Okay. If you look at, you know, getting into a neurologist's office and then being referred to someone else, mm-hmm. you're looking at these three month to six month windows yeah. of just getting to that next appointment, Yeah. you know? And yeah. so really it wasn't necessarily that we were doing all this research to try to figure out what it was. It was just mm-hmm. the system so backed up in order to kind of hit all the things you need to hit. Right, right. And then at that point you reached the diagnosis and that's when you started doing your research and then got connected with the woman who started the the lab to diagnose, to create a treatment for her daughter. And that's what inspired you. Yeah, she worked with Dr. Tim Yu at Boston Children's. And so that was her team. You know, Tim Yu was not a drug developer. He was actually a neurologist and a researcher Mm -hmm. and saw this RNA technology. You know, most of these diseases are monogenic. So we're looking at one gene, you know, and, uh, and so he, he went for this one gene and was successful with that, you know, therapeutic. Gotcha. And so I guess moving forward then, you had this idea of creating a lab and or creating a team essentially to to try and create a to create a diagnostic what hurdles stood in your way as you were trying to do that yeah so the first hurdle was that i didn't have a phd from harvard <laughs> and so getting anyone to collaborate with me without i mean i have one semester of college you yeah. know was my own imposter syndrome, if you add that in. But what I, what I noticed was there are scientists and clinicians that are very passionate about patients, and they're willing to be emotionally involved. They're willing to be friends. That typical clinical wall that is, <laughs> like, you know, pummeled into you in medical school yeah. isn't around everyone. And yeah. so the first hurdle was finding a team of scientists that we could determine whether or not the disease was amenable to a current technology like gene therapy, RNA, mm-hmm. or, you know, doing some small molecule repurposing program. I found researchers that could help me with that. Mm-hmm. We felt pretty good that we could do it. And then the second, second issue was who's going to develop this drug. Mm-hmm. And so typically what's been done is most preclinical work is done in a university or an academic institution. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the problem with that now, especially if you're, as a parent and like urgency, is that that's months of negotiation with the tech transfer office. Mm-hmm. And translational science isn't exactly what gets you the big bucks and grants. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, publishing is really the incentive around those labs not coming up with curative treatments. It's mm-hmm. just the way the system is. Mm-hmm. And so I spent about five months with Columbia negotiating an SRA where I, where the foundation on the rights and uh, it fell apart. And so that was five months of time wasted. And the main reason I wanted to make sure the foundation owned the intellectual property mm-hmm. is maybe you've seen the news with Tasha and Southwestern university, great people at both places. Mm-hmm. Um, but these rare diseases are getting shelved and biotech companies because that intellectual property though it has some value none of the shareholders or investors actually want to commercialize this drug it's just not going to you know it's too risky to make the kind of money you could with say another covid treatment you know and so they're acquiring the ip and then not doing anything with it and absolutely just 
Yeah. What is their financial advantage? Like, why? I think it's twofold. I think one is it makes their company look better. So if you look at like intellectual property and having a portfolio, you're sort of de-risking your company model and it makes people mm. a little bit more attracted to invest in it. I think that's one. The other is I think there's genuine desire to crack the rare disease problem. Mm -hmm. But many of these founders and operators of these companies find out, you know, painfully mm -hmm. that they literally cannot take this drug into a trial. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, these drugs are funded by people like me, you yeah. know, by the the parents that are raising the millions of dollars necessary to get, you know, yeah. to get these drugs yeah. uh, working. Right. And I guess it's because you can't commercialize because there isn't a big enough market, so to speak. Um, it doesn't make financial sense for pharma or biotech to pursue these things. So they have to be self-funded by parents, by donations and things like that. Yeah. And is that how you've currently funded your lab? Well, so the foundation that's working on the drug for H2, that's how we're funding that. You uh -huh. know, we're taking any donation to, um, we've raised what, six or 700 grand and we're, you know, we need to get to about two, three million with this current drug if it's going to, you know, get through trial. Uh -huh. After I worked, you know, the academic thing fell through and then I started working with you know, CROs, contract research organizations that do this work. Uh -huh. They're so expensive. Yeah. And incredibly uncollaborative you know you're talking about an ex-musician doing drug development i need someone that's <laughs> that's willing to work with me you know when i don't know the answers to some of these questions and and one of my cro's lost a bunch of clones you know it is an incredibly inefficient system yeah and so the thought here was i talked to my cso here in austin ronnie bowling who was uh molecular um, biologist at, at uh, a drug developer at uh, X biotech. And I said, man, we just need to start our own lab so mm -hmm. that these foundations, we can do this drug development super fast and not have to pay as much money, mm -hmm. you know, as all these other people are charging. And lo and behold, we found a guy that had some special needs kids that was an operator of some really successful startups yeah. and pitched him the idea and he said, let's go for it. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, we started that in May and it's allowed us to go at lightning speed or we're moving at the speed of biology and not at the speed of inefficient, you know, clunky pipelines. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I mean, I got to imagine this has been extremely difficult to go through, like one as a parent, but also two as just an operator um, with a background, you know, a background <laughs> in a completely different industry, right? What was it that motivated you to like, like to go after this, right? Like, I'm sure you knew it was, was going to be extremely difficult. I'm guessing the love for your daughter is a big motivator for you. And that's what keeps you going every day. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, Rose, it is incredibly difficult taking care of a special needs child. Mm -hmm. And I'm divorced now. So, you know, I get my girls for a week and then I don't have them for a week. And, mm -hmm. and I'm reminded every day that I'm one of, you know, two, three, four hundred million parents that are going through this, too. Mm -hmm. but, but what I've 
found, at least for me personally, is that when you see an injustice like this that's personally affected you, you've really got two choices. You can either just manage mm-hmm. or you can do something about it, you know? And yeah, I'm, I'm not qualified to be doing what I'm doing. And that's yeah. why I'm surrounded by really, really smart people mm. that are that I heavily lean on for decision-making and, and leadership. And, yeah. and But what I do have is vision and purpose that mm-hmm. is incredibly motivating to the right people that maybe have other skills that want to go, want to push a boulder up the mountain with me, you yeah. know? So, I mean, there's been skills around, specifically around communication, leadership, mm-hmm. project management. Mm-hmm. I'm like the worst project manager <laughs> ever, you know? But, but because I've had to, I mean, I have accountability partners. I've, I've done some of the weirdest things I never thought I would ever do in my life from a business yeah. standpoint, just so I could learn the skills to save my daughter because yeah. it wasn't just about the technologies also whether or not I have the capabilities of leading a team, mm-hmm. you know, and, and knowing who to listen to, yeah. you know, and knowing what a failure means, yeah. you know, and that part's been really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Was there, I mean, I imagine it was enormously stressful as you got the diagnosis, as you learned about the limited options, was there a point or a moment in that process where you were like, I'm not going to just be a bystander. I'm not going to just watch. I'm going to go do something. Did you have any moment like that? Oh yeah. So, I mean, to be real honest, when she was first diagnosed, I was in denial. Mm. Um, and then I was mad and I was grieving because I knew Mm. that my daughter would never fall in love. She would never say dad again. I would never see her go to school or accomplish something that she was proud of, or mm-hmm. I would be taking care of her. I'll be changing her diapers for the rest of my life. You know, that Selfishly, that mm-hmm. was also very depressing to think that, you yeah. know? And so I, you know, basically feeling really sorry for myself. But when I was reading these stories of this world that we're in now, that it's no longer about developing a molecule from scratch, but literally platform technologies that just need to be developed Mm -hmm. for these monogenic diseases and the gene therapies or what we're doing, the ASO and, and seeing parents, lawyers, teachers, marketing directors, Mm -hmm. finance, wealth, wealth management guys, like Mm -hmm. none of these people had drug development experience and they were literally creating curative treatments and Mm -hmm. organizing the team. And they're basically this Mm -hmm. pseudo biotech yeah. That doesn't, isn't concerned about profit, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I knew if, the, if these guys could do it, I could, I could figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. What's Rose like? Yeah. Well, it's, if you go to the Facebook or Instagram page or link, my LinkedIn, you can see videos. She's, she's in there, mm-hmm. you know, data that comes in. You can see she's taking it in. How, how it comes out is totally different. Yeah. So she can laugh. You know, if I was choking on food, she would be laughing hysterically. <laughs> so she's not the best person to ha- like. She'll never do the Heimlich maneuver. She'll she'll laugh while you die. But <laughs> but uh, her laugh is just infectious. You right. know, and and then she'll cry and scream 
for reasons I just cannot figure out. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't go to the grocery store because it's like driving a bunch of millions of needles into her body when she's in a grocery store. Mm-hmm. And so I get to use Instacart, which I'm super grateful <laughs> for. She can walk finally. She sort of waddles. She points and coos and makes sounds. And how uh, old is she now? She's six. Okay. Yeah. And so it's almost like you're relearning communication because she's just interpreting what we see, feel, hear, and smell differently. Mm. I mean, I can't even imagine. I don't have kids currently, but... Uh, well, you, you've, you've got... I've got a little baby dachshund. You've got a four, four-legged... <laughs> child <laughs> who's uh who's crying a little bit because we put her in the other room but i imagine like there's nothing that could you know that would be more difficult than seeing a child like you know really in pain or suffering oh yeah and, i mean yeah so i can't even imagine how much of a driving force that is for you and probably a hundred so other parents thousands of other parents that have gone and you know started something similar to you and that's really the part that like inspired me a little bit. I think when we first spoke, I was just like, wow, like this is a guy that's on a mission purpose. Like I, you know, I wanted to do my part to just help out because I feel, I felt like your story was very, very genuine and you don't always come across those kinds of stories or those kinds of people that are like on a mission to do something. And like, for me, I res like, I just resonate with that. It, like, it inspires me because I want to be on a mission with whatever I'm doing. Absolutely. Right? And God forbid, I don't ever want to be on in that position. I don't think any parent would want to be. Uh, but it, that's your reality and you're doing everything you can to to do your part, right? You know, that's pretty, it's pretty damn awesome. Well, you know, I will say I'm grateful to Rose that she was my child and not somebody else's because mm-hmm. I'm crazy enough to... <laughs> to do this you know and and we really need a lot of people in this space trying to solve this problem because Mm -hmm. the problem isn't that we can't come up with genetic treatments the Mm -hmm. problem is the pipelines the business models the Mm -hmm. uh, the incentives for the different institutions and companies and Mm -hmm. you know that regulatory path like those are our problems yeah and and so if we can get enough people talking and doing their part inside this Mm -hmm. we can start shifting this so that you know the truth is i should never be a drug developer i should never be raising millions of dollars i shouldn't be running a lab (laughs) (laughs) that's definitely true but i am and i will until parents and patients don't have to be doing this Mm -hmm. you know and so I, I think, almost think it's better run by parents because well, right now you can, you're doing it for the right reasons, right? Maybe like uh, someone yeah. else doing it is just doing it for to make some money, profit, like at the end of the day. No, I mean, you're right. And yet, if we can't figure out a way mm-hmm. for it to be sustainable and profitable, it's never going to scale. So if you're looking at 200 million kids... And that number is just going up, by the yeah, way. Yeah, that's for all rare genetic diseases. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. all rare genetic diseases then we know that we need some model that's scalable across even countries, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so that's, that's part of it is, you know, I don't care about making money, but I know that we have to figure out a sustainable way to do this. Yeah. And uh, the specific disease that Rose has, is that, that you said there's only 100 of that specific disease in the world? or 
Yeah. So because of this diagnostic issue, mm-hmm. uh, newborn, you know, new, getting newborn screened, um, access to whole genome, whole exome sequencing, most of these rare diseases are too rare, really, or I say many of these rare diseases are too rare because there's too many undiagnosed people in the world. Mm-hmm. And so right now, Rose's disease, HNRMPH2, has 100 diagnosed patients in the world. Broad Institute's equation, after they sequenced you know, hundreds of thousands of genomes, says that there's probably three or 4,000 kids in the U.S., Mm. And if they were all, and they're just undiagnosed neurologic yeah. disorders that just people, nobody knows. Yeah, they're, they're they're say extreme autism or they're in ABA therapy. Mm. You know, these the phenotypes of neurodevelopmental diseases really range broadly, and so most of the time parents won't get them sequenced unless they're you know catatonic right. or having seizures. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we call it severe autism. Got it. Gosh. So why was it that Rose was uh, able to get a diagnosis, but maybe other children weren't? Because her mom and I are we're psycho child hoverers at the beginning <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and looking at every possible problem. And their mom is a physician's assistant and was mm. in neurology for a while. So she's, yeah, that, she's the one that actually clued in, hey, I think that there's an issue here. I was just like, nah, she's fine, you know? Really? Yeah, and so I think most people don't even know you can get a genomic sequence, you yeah. know? And so she made the request to get a genomic sequence, which, which ended up leading to the diagnosis? I actually did that work. Okay. And she was the one that, that <clears throat> said there's a problem and stuck on the neurologist long enough to say, hey, this, you know, we need to keep running it down okay this is getting interesting yeah so what was the neurologist is what was their like diagnosis what were they telling you guys before that was prompted by you and your wife or ex-wife yeah so he would he would look at her and say i think she has angelman's mm-hmm. or this could be rat syndrome and so he's basing his diagnosis on the physical phenotype clinical phenotype of the child yeah and the problem with that is that there's so many neurological diseases that look alike. That look alike. I yeah. mean, you, I spent time with an Angelman's child. There were some similarities between him and my daughter. The CACNA 1A, I'm thinking of other ones. I mean, there's just so many, you know, mm-hmm. and these kids look alike. And so I think it's important to, as a clinician, to just be like, okay, let's just go ahead and see if we can just order this test mm-hmm. saves so much time. Yeah. You know, was there, I mean, if it was Angelman's and that was the route that he was going to go down, was he, was that genetic test going to be ordered anyways? So Angelman's was on the list mm-hmm. and I'll tell you why, because there wasn't a therapeutic for, at that for time. For those listening, Angelman's is a, it's a genetic disorder. Yeah. It's a genetic yeah. disease. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about Angelman's is mm-hmm. that, so my daughter's is one and a half, Per hundred thousand kids, theirs is like one in fifteen thousand, I believe, and so it's much more prevalent rare disease. Mm-hmm. And my numbers may be wrong on that, but so don't quote me. But mm-hmm. they had enough. The organization, the foundation of families, had enough wealthy people and enough patients to raise an immense amount of money, mm-hmm. and so they created this competitive landscape of doing disease modeling, natural history study, 
And they ended up finding it therapeutic for Angelman's. And so just this past year, mm-hmm. they have partnered with Ultragenics to bring this to the Angelman's kids. Mm-hmm. You know, so those kids in clinical trial are talking for the first time. They're swimming when yeah. they can barely balance. What does that gene therapy look like? Like, what's the process of going through that? Yeah, so... I mean, even as a physician, I have no idea what that looks like. Okay, so, yeah. so it's, there's really only a few modalities for us right now that are sort of proven through the FDA where we're not going to do 10 years of research, you know, and it's gene therapies. It's the antisense technology, ASOs and repurposed small molecules, drugs that already exist. Mm -hmm. And with a monogenic disease, you know, you're looking at either silencing that mutant gene, overexpressing a good gene or replacing the gene. Mm -hmm. And those are just three of like the basic things when you're looking at that mutation gene therapy is a one and done treatment you know it uses a viral vector which is a virus with all the guts pulled out and and it delivers this new gene or gene replacement Mm -hmm. into the area you're looking for as an injection as an intrathecal injection most of the time or interest intraserum ventricular if Mm, if i'm saying that right okay Um, (laughs) which i'm probably not for all you neurologists listening i apologize I'm focused more on neurological disease when I'm saying this, you know, with, mm-hmm. with blood or, or, or something else, it, it would be an injection in the body. Mm-hmm. The problem with gene therapy is you have to get it right, mm-hmm. but it's very powerful. In the brain, it has less coverage than, say, some RNA therapeutics, but it has been successful and it continues to become more and more successful. The technology we're looking at, the ASO, is what they use with the Angelman's. And it's a, it's an RNA therapeutic. So basically, you deliver it intrathecally, and it, it's basically like a piece of Band-Aid while your body's reading your DNA messaging, creating a protein, mm-hmm. and it's, it's telling it to do the right thing. Or in our case, we're silencing this gene so it just moves over it and mm-hmm. doesn't make this toxic gain of function that we're seeing okay is the is the aso that you mentioned is that like a, another virus or another how, how does it go to interact with the protein or with the dna yeah so it's interesting because it doesn't use a viral vector mm-hmm. just a, yeah so as a viral vector yeah you mean like uh so if you see, if you think of like a if you think of like a capsule that's carrying some information yeah. which like meets a sound like blobs into it yeah essentially yeah. yeah okay yeah your virus is is designed to like get into that cell and deliver the payload yeah so it's like a transporter mm-hmm. essentially yeah okay. asos are different they're a lot more complicated to me we're literally printing synthetic RNA material Mm -hmm. and based on the sugars and the structures on each side of that material, Mm -hmm. tell it where it's almost like a key. Mm -hmm. So we made 200 different designs to fit around this one mutant gene Mm -hmm. and we sort of walk it down the gene and we're looking for something that's, that knocks it down enough and we're also looking for something that's not toxic. So there's certain, when you start getting into the coding mm-hmm. of a piece of RNA, there's certain pieces of code that your body's immediately going to recognize and start fighting it. They're going to create off-targeting effects. It's going to land too many other places. And so those are the things that within a design 
with ASOs become really, really important. Mm -hmm. That's as far as I get (laughs) as a non-chemist, you know. How old are these technologies? How recent of an advancement is the ASO compared to gene therapy? ASOs, I think ASOs are over 30 years old. Mm -hmm. We've just finally gotten to the point where the art of optimizing the chemistry and what Mm -hmm. they call the backbone have become much more known. Okay. In terms of future development for rare diseases, like are these technologies, because you you mentioned like that you just need the platform because then you can maybe plug in a different rare disease or target. Absolutely. That can just be then redeveloped, retargeted, right? So it would make that process simpler in some ways. Is this something we're close to? I mean, I'm sure you know a lot of, a lot more about this than most in, of us. <laughs> in many ways, I think we're already there. We just don't have the personnel, the structure, and the business model to do it. Mm-hmm. These technologies can't cure every genetic disease. They can create therapeutics for a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And once we do that, knowing that we can go into a newborn child and in some cases them lead a completely normal life because they're at this developing stage that this therapeutic made the impact it needed on their development, right? you know, to allow them to function healthy. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're there for many of the diseases. We just, current biotech and pharma models and hospital models don't support this. Mm-hmm. You know, I, my dream, and you know, this is my dream I'm working on with Dell, can we diagnose a child, build their drug, and treat them in the same hospital? Just like you would with a heart surgery, a mm-hmm. brain surgery, a lung transplant. Can we look at this more like a procedure mm-hmm. and less like a drug? Mm-hmm. You know? I see what you're saying. Yeah. That we're literally doing genetic editing. So we're not there mm-hmm. by any means, but I see it as a, a very, very high possibility yeah. that I hope for. Yeah. What are some things you've learned in this process building a building essentially a, a, bi- a small biotech company? Yeah. Well, I've learned that my dad used to tell me, "You know not that you know not." <laughs> I was an egotistical brat in my twenties, and uh, surrounding yourself with people outside of your knowledge base is extremely important, mm-hmm. and you never want to operate in a silo you know we can be institutionalized so easily with how we think about something Mm -hmm. and i think it's really important for us to stay open and recognize that you're going to check and see if this is real you're Mm going to use the scientific method to know yes or no but stay open to these you know new technologies and don't think that they're as far away from you, maybe. Yeah. I mean, look, dude, if I can do this, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, we're in a new age. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you were. I was saying you're a pretty big physician, uh, not physician, <laughs> musician <laughs> here in the Austin area, right? Or were you somewhere else before this? No, I mean, I, you know, I spent ten years working on my career and ended up. I did end up with a major label record deal. Had a couple of hits in the U.S. and big video on VH1 if you remember when they actually played <laughs> yeah. music videos and uh you know and that was cool and then about that time I joined a progressive rock band that uh you know Mike Portnoy from Dream Theater 
Steve Morris from Deep Purple in Kansas. So these were like big guys, you yeah. know. And and so yeah, I mean, I I feel like I what I I don't have my own jet or anything like that, <laughs> but but I was making a good you know making a good living playing music, and that's what yeah. I was hoping I could be able to do. That's awesome, man. I mean, it says a lot about you because I, I think that a lot of people aspire to be like a musician or do something like not everybody follows their dream right yeah i think it's that's a it's not everybody has that kind of courage even to do that even to just become a musician like not a lot of people do that right not a lot of people go and start a biotech company to save their daughter yeah so, well not a lot of people like making decisions that are almost guaranteed not to make the money yeah <laughs> so that's a good point that is such a good point honestly. i mean yeah and i have to be careful of that you yeah. know i have to be careful of is my life sustainable with you know missions all well and good but if you can't support the mission mm -hmm. then you can't get anything done yeah. you know and and so i think i in music i struggled with that is but, there any parallels there that you see like you know you kept going in the music part of your career where like it was hard but you're like i'm committed to this this is my dream i love this any parallels you see there between your music career and now you're now trying to do this for oh it's like you just keep going yeah. yeah i mean when you're looking at developing genetic treatments you will fail yeah no question 95 percent of clinical trials don't make it to market right yeah <laughs> i mean that that's about your same metric it, it is for getting to be a successful right. band, you yeah, know? which is actually also why drugs are so expensive. Absolutely, because they're yeah. tacking on all those failures onto the yeah. price of that drug that finally made it. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, man, I can't even, I can't even believe <laughs> what it's taken to get to where you are right now. But man, I'm, I have so much respect for what you're doing, so much respect for your purpose, and your daughter is absolutely beautiful. I've, I checked, obviously saw your website and everything. And, you know, there's videos and there's pictures mm -hmm. of you two together. She's the sweetest little thing. And, you know, I think this is an important discussion and I want to support Curing Rose, the To Cure Rose Foundation. And I want all of our listeners to please go to To Cure, it's the, the website's To Cure Rose. Yeah, To Cure Rose.org. To Cure mm -hmm. Rose.org. Please go and support it share it on any social media you have send it to any of your biotech friends i think this is important for for us to do our parts as doctors and you know when you come across a story when you come across good people i think it's you know my personally i want to do do this to help tell your story and i, I hope somebody listening is going to be uh you know a big glimmer of hope for you and for and for rose Thanks, Romy. I appreciate you. And for those of you that got through this this whole podcast, I appreciate you listening. You know, if you are compelled, like this is happening in real time, reach out to us. And I'm happy to to talk to you about this. And and if you're wondering how you can be a part of this, I'm happy to 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 help that because we we need boots on the ground. You know, these kiddos need need boots on the ground. Definitely. Um, anywhere our listeners can reach out to you, get in touch, uh, send you a message. Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn, Casey McPherson. Um, always on there. <laughs> we'll drop that in the show notes. Yeah, too. and uh, and you can email me at Casey at tocurerose.org. You can check out our lab, everloom.bio. And uh, yeah, friend us on 
Instagram to Cure Rose and Facebook as well. So we'd love to love to hear from you. Awesome. Casey, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. 